8.03, and due to the economic fallout from COVID-19, China experienced its first ever quarterly economic contraction since the end of the Cultural Revolution in 1976. While most businesses in the country are open, China remains stifled by the pandemic. For further discussion, we have Mr. Nick Marrow, lead analyst at the Economist Intelligence Unit on the line. Good morning to you from Seoul. Good morning. Hi. Yeah, thank you for joining us. So this first ever contraction in quarterly GDP shrinking 6.8% from January through March compared to the same period last year. It looks worrying for China. How do you evaluate it? That's right, yeah. And as you mentioned, it was a historic contraction. Uh, It's the worst performance you've seen in recent memory, but it wasn't necessarily surprising. I mean, economic activity essentially collapsed in February, and the resumption in March really hasn't indicated that the economy has come back to full steam. So the weakness was kind of expected. And really, analysts in the market um, saw a pretty wide range of, um, or had a pretty wide range of forecasts for the first quarter. Uh, we saw estimates ranging from as low as 28% uh, negative growth to as high as 4%. The IU's own forecast was 7%, so pretty in line with 6.8% uh, you know, the actual data. Um, but all of this is, is pretty dire. Um, our own expectations are China will see somewhat of a U-shaped recovery with only marginal positive growth in the second quarter of 2020 and only 1% annual average uh, expansion this year. And a lot of that is going to be due to the weakness in the first quarter. To put this in perspective, how does it compare with what happened in 2008 uh, or with SARS, for example? Right, yeah. I mean, both... Uh, periods are pretty interesting. Um, in, in SARS, actually, China, in 2003 after SARS, China actually grew by about 10%. Um, it was able to really export itself out of the crisis that year. During the global financial crisis, China actually grew by 9.4% back in 2009. Um, and so expectations of only 1% annual growth this year indicate that you know the, the COVID-19 crisis is actually much more severe. And there are some really interesting dynamics that are at play right now. Um, China doesn't really have the same policy tools available that exist in, the, in those last two crises. Um, the pandemic spread globally means that economic activity has collapsed across the world, including key export markets. Um, and so uh, Chinese export growth is going to be negative this year. It's not going to be able to sell things to the world to kind of lift that economic activity. So that the, the situation we saw during SARS, that's not going to be replicated. Um, during the global financial crisis, China announced a ton of infrastructure stimulus um, to kind of stabilize its domestic economy. Um, but in the 10 years since then or so, or 10 plus years, um, the, that stimulus package has actually created a lot of problems for China. Things like a lot of bad debt, industrial overcapacity, weakening productivity. China was actually trying to tackle these structural issues since then, but the trade war and other things derail that agenda, and so it has less space to rely on those policy tools. Um, and so that means that China is in much more of a, a dire situation um, in terms of the, the policy tools available uh, to try and find relief. Um, and really, the COVID pandemic is going to have a pretty severe impact on global growth overall, which is going to compound these effects. So the EIU expects uh, global GDP to contract by 2.5% this year for comparison in 2009. Uh, GDP contracted by about 1.7%. Uh, but this severity makes sense. I mean, we're seeing an, really an unprecedented disruption to economic activity, both in terms of the intensity and the rapidity of how quickly entire markets have shuttered. What's your 
expectation on on the global impact here, the the spillover effect, the the fact that China is there now. Uh, if we follow the pattern of the virus itself, it would seem like many others are going to be following suit. And 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 is there anything we can do to better prepare ourselves? That's right. I mean, a lot of well, we expect much of the peak of the pain to really be concentrated over the second quarter of 2020. Um, and there's really not much we can do right now um, because so much of this is going to be tied to how countries and governments actually handle the virus. Um, it's it's things like social do- lockdown or social distancing measures, lockdowns, quarantines, th- things things that flatten the curve, which are really going to be key in terms of how governments first handle the healthcare aspect of this before moving into restarting economic activity. And there's a huge risk that lifting lockdowns too quickly could lead to, uh, say, a second wave um, or could you know, erase some of the stability that we've seen in fighting the virus so far. That's a really big issue that we're seeing with the U.S. right now. I think that's the most prominent news story. Um, but we're also seeing that in other parts of the world as well, Pakistan, Indonesia, areas where social lockdowns or social distancing measures have been quite controversial. Um, governments have to navigate this very fine line between protecting the economy, protecting you know, jobs and people's livelihoods, uh, with protecting kind of people's own you know, health um, and, uh, and minimizing the human cost of the virus. Um, in terms of things like contagion um, and the spread from China, we're actually looking at broader international developments um, China, as it comes back to work, might actually be a source of relative stability, particularly as, say, regional supply chains come back online. Uh, but other broader things, like the huge fall in oil prices, which would have you know, impacts for emerging markets across Asia, Latin America, Africa, and the Middle East, uh, and the volatility that stems from that, those are going to be kind of the bigger things which tie into this larger picture of any global economic recovery. When we think about some of the comparisons that are being made. We, we talked before about SARS in 2008. Actually, the Great Depression is, is what keeps coming up and what happened after that uh, Wall Street crash of, of 29. And, and the images from that era of long lines of people searching for jobs, searching for food, searching for anything to get through it. It looked like a particularly bleak era. Most of us listening now will obviously not have... Uh, come close to living through it but what's your view on comparisons like that yeah uh, personally and uh, that's something that i've looked at as well um, and it is pretty worrisome um, it's not just the economic situation but like you said the situation with people's livelihoods um, but also the, the diplomatic uh, situation too i mean the you know the great depression preceded a decade of crisis um and warfare um and you know the the, the, the we saw the world get plunged into World War II. I'm not saying that that's going to be an inevitable outcome of this, but we are seeing diplomatic strains between China and the rest of the world um, really intensify. Uh, we, have, we have a specifically an eye on U.S.-China relations um, and the deterioration in the U.S.-China bilateral relationship. I mean, that's, that's you know, been an ongoing story since the trade war, but in, in recent months, the rhetoric has really picked up to alarming levels. Um, you know, both countries are really trading uh, barbs over who's responsible for this. Uh, it seems that this is a strategy on both sides to deflect criticism of their handling of the event. Um, but it, it's kind of spiraling in a sense. Um, both sides are kind of, through official channels, actively cons- uh, promoting conspiracy theories. Um, that suggests to me that, number one, any 
joint effort by the world's two largest economies to come together um, and fight the virus, that's probably going to be pretty unlikely in the immediate term. And that's a loss for the entire world, the resources and the coordination that can benefit from that, that won't come together. The second thing is that once the world does emerge from the ashes of crisis, what will the world look like? Not just in terms of disrupted trade and economic links, but also um, will, will these political fissures still remain? Will, will those tensions lead to other disputes? And what what will be the consequences of these disputes? Um, I think that's going to be a very interesting, potentially pretty dangerous question uh, looking forward in the period from 2021 onwards. Another controversial question at this point, though, is how exactly this outbreak started. And because of some of the mystery that uh, that remains, there are certainly areas of fuel for conspiracy theories. One of the ideas that seems to persist out there is that uh, China stands to gain overall from this uh, pandemic, even if it's suffered this economic contraction in the short term. What's your view? Is China, regardless of the conspiracy theories about how this outbreak started, is China a country that does stand to gain more than other countries out of this, uh, out of these ashes that you described before? And are there any other nations that we should be looking at in that respect? Yeah, I think that's quite interesting. Um, and I think that initially, um, well, initially it looked quite bad for China. And then the prevailing narrative has been that the virus originated in Wuhan and it was the government's fault for allowing it to get this bad because of the initial cover-up. Um, but when it looked like China had some success in stabilizing the pandemic domestically and then engaging in pretty altruistic diplomatic efforts to help other countries, that, that narrative seemed to be turning. However, it seems like, I guess what we could call this mask diplomacy, hasn't really yielded the fruits that China has really wanted. Um, a lot of this diplomacy has been, you know, come with strings attached. So, for example, donations of masks or medical equipment um, have been accompanied by Chinese embassy officials asking governments to praise China and praise China's response. Um, any kind of criticism or uh, attempt to have a more nuanced discussion in terms of you know, how the virus started in China, how that might you know, be a result of the political dynamics in the market. China has, has reacted very defensively and aggressively to that. So I think in, in the long, in the overall, China is actually, there's a bigger risk of China actually undermining itself. Um, in terms of its messaging along this. And I personally would say that a lot of the diplomatic efforts that we've seen out of China over the past two months specifically, but really over the past you know, half a year, the diplomacy has been quite unsophisticated. Um, and it, that, that raises a risk of actually isolating China um, from a lot of international partners amid this pandemic because of the way it's acting. I think that's not going to be the case for everybody. Um, so if you look at, say, Belt and Road countries, for example, um, we, we could conceivably see something like a medical or a healthcare component of the Belt and Road as China tries and um, plays that angle to enhance its support for developing countries. That could push some markets, particularly in, say, South Asia, Southeast Asia, Central Asia, more into China's orbit. But that was a, a trend that we've been seeing for a while now. And absent any major disruption, that was always kind of be, that was always going to kind of be um, the outcome. I think in the future, everything I mentioned before about U.S.-China relations, um, it's really those two spheres of influence that we'll be looking at, again, the post-COVID pandemic period, um, as I think countries face more of a stark choice in terms of 
how they choose international partnerships, and what consequences uh, those might bring as a result, not just diplomatically, but in terms of attracting things like investment or, or shoring up the economic linkages elsewhere. Before this outbreak, there was very much a, a push for relying less on fossil fuels. We're now in a situation where uh, oil is remarkably cheap, and perhaps countries like China, the world's second largest consumer of oil, its biggest importer, would benefit from from cheap oil. This oil situation that's occurred as a result of the pandemic, what's your view of that and, and how it will impact not just China but the wider world? Right. Yeah, well, China normally does stockpile uh, when prices are low. Uh, and so we were expecting that, I think, back in a couple you know, months ago um, when, when the OPEC price war started. Um, and so, I mean, that is one area where it will benefit. Um, and then for China, I mean, lower imported oil prices will help bring down things like consumer price inflation, uh, which impacts, you know, regular people um, a lot more than, say, a headline contraction in GDP. And inflation in China has already has recently been quite high. That's due to separate things. Uh, pork prices, which are a staple Chinese meat, have surged because of the African swine fever outbreak. It's been very difficult for Chinese policymakers to control that. So cheaper oil prices should, um, you know, be a bit positive there. In more kind of uh, economist terms, um, cheaper oil prices should also lead to something called import compression on the current account. So that would help China maintain um, a, a current account surplus this year. Um, overall, that means that could be good for helping China maintain its foreign exchange reserves as ex- export activity creators. That's good for things like stabilizing the currency if it needs to. Um, and so there are some positive benefits there. But for China, that's that's kind of really where the positive elements end. Um, the domestic economic recovery, um, and that includes things like recovery in employment and income, which are much more critical these days, that's really more dependent on a host of other factors, not least the health of the global economy. Um, really, it would be a rebound in oil prices, which would be good for financial markets, for investor sentiment, for stabilizing the turmoil across emerging markets and emerging currencies. That would be more positive, actually, for China in the long run, and more positive um, for the kind of the global story as well. Um, it's really that lack of clarity, that lack of stability, which is eroding investor sentiment, um, and that sentiment uh, plays a really big driver uh, in terms of how all of this is developing. Nick Marrow, lead analyst from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Thank you very much for sharing your analysis with us. Thank you.